morning we'll be reading uh, from the book of Psalms, book one. Give you a minute to turn there. Chapter one. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff in the wind, <clears throat> like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, I pray that uh, we wouldn't look to our own hearts for your law, uh, that we wouldn't be foolish thinking that uh, we know better than your word. I pray that we would look to your revelation in scripture, uh, that we would delight in it, that it would make our hearts glad, that it would direct our, direct our minds and our hearts uh, towards what is truly just and, and glorious and to your desires for your creation. I pray that we would uh, bow our minds to your word this morning, that we would learn from it, and that we would be wise in uh, receiving instruction from it. Amen. As Adam started a section of 1 Peter and kind of taking a little break here in the middle, that we'll be away from 1 Peter for a couple of weeks. So as we have sort of a standalone opportunity here uh, in the text, we're going to be spending a couple weeks in Psalm. So we're in Psalm 1 this morning. The University of Chicago does a study every year. They've done it for nearly 50 years. I think 1972 is when they started it. And it's based on, it's a survey, a poll they take, and um, looking to gain information on the, the mental health or the, the mental state of American adults. Really, a lot of it is looking at sort of their happiness or their perspective on, on life. And so one of the questions, one of the main questions at the end is just, would you consider yourself a happy person? And um, the light's going you can see yourself a happy person on a scale of kind of like somewhat to very happy. And I guess in 2020, they did it right at the end of the year, it came back and only 14% of people would consider themselves somewhat to very happy. I guess the trend has been downward over the last 50 years. It's no surprise that 2020 would be the lowest one yet, not the, the best year for a lot of people with COVID. Uh, an ugly election season, just a lot of things happening. But anyways, this survey, as it goes forth, it, it shows us and, and really reveals a lot of things. But one is that happiness is the pursuit of so many people. <laughs> it, it is what, what our culture, what Americans are pursuing. It's written right in there, the pursuit of happiness, right? That trying to find happiness. We're marketed to in that way all the time, that this specific item, this thing, it is what will bring you happiness. And yet with all of the advancements that we've seen in our culture and technology and our society, as it's brought about, you know, more longer lifespan, it's brought about uh, safer, healthier outcomes for people, way of staying in communication and constant communication with people. As all of that has advanced, the one thing we do know is that happiness has not advanced with it. As Christians, well, I guess I shouldn't say 
this is maybe too broad, within our little sphere or slice of the Christian church, which would be pretty broad, but if you were to take us as, as people who are generally reformed, people who are conservative in our understanding of Scripture, that we believe it to be inerrant, that we have a high view of God, there isn't much talk about happiness. There isn't from this pulpit. You're, I can guarantee you, you're never going to come and have like a 10-part series on you know, how to be happy. There's a reason for that. Sometimes uh, the reason is because within a lot of Christian circles, the gospel is, is watered down so heavily that it becomes the gospel message is that Jesus wants you to be happy. And happiness then just becomes your kind of feeling that whatever you want to do at that moment, it becomes an excuse for all kinds of ways of living, of ways of identifying that, that God really is just loving enough and he just wants you to be happy. And so it, it's kind of built that way. So, of course, we're not going to approach the scripture with some sort of, of watering down the cost of the gospel and, and the call to holiness and instead just saying that God wants you to be happy. And yet... At the same time, happiness, as Scripture explains it, is incredibly important. Psalm 1 begins this way, blessed is the man. You've probably heard this before, but blessed, literally, happy is the man. Now, the English term happy is the right translation, but at the same time, it doesn't really carry the substance and the weight that's being communicated with blessed is the man or happy is the man. It is a, a weightiness. It is may, joyful satisfaction is probably the best phrase that I came across to explain this kind of happiness. It is a joyful satisfaction. It is not less than happiness, but it's much more than sort of the introspective, carefree type of sense of happiness we talk about. Joyful satisfaction is a happiness that can exist right alongside of a host of other emotions, of sadness, of sorrow. Those don't stand as the opposite of this sort of happiness, of this sort of joyful satisfaction. Everyone wants this as part of their lives. People are pursuing it one way or the other. Someone is going to tell us how to pursue it, and it's going to give us a few observations on this sort of joyful satisfaction. But before I go to Psalm 1, I want to take one step back and just give a little bit of background on Psalms itself. If the introduction goes kind of long, don't worry, we'll go through the observations rather quickly. In Scripture, we believe that all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is given to us and is profitable for correction, for teaching, for reproof. And Scripture comes in different forms, different genres, right? It comes, as we've been in 1 Peter now, in this letter form, which we would call didactic or teaching. It's a letter that we teach. And so as we study, as it comes to you, it's much more broken down into this clause supports this clause and this sentence, and, and it is teaching at that level. Most of the Old Testament is communicated to us in narrative. It, it, it is story. It is history or a story told to us. And that this combination of genre gives us sort of a really well-rounded, clear, full picture of who God is, both in propositional statements, then filling it out with, with detail and with color through these narratives. 
And so we, we come to Scripture and we have this, this clear picture of who God is, holy and majestic, king, creator. And then we get a picture of man, created in the image of God and yet sinful and fallen. And immediately now, Scripture begins to reveal to us in all these different genres God's unfolding plan of redemption. What indeed he is working out to save you, to set you free. And then as you come from the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, then Jesus Christ, who it's all been leading to, here Jesus Christ enters as the climax of history. In the gospel events, he has come now to accomplish those gospel promises. And so you see in the gospels this laid out for us. And then we have these New Testament books, these epistles, these teachings that tell us then how do we as the church, people who believe in God as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, how do we live now when we are still very much human citizens? Citizens of humanity to time and place in which we live. How is this all worked out? And Psalm, the Psalms are so important because the Psalms admit for us, they give voice to us that it is really complex and confusing and hard at times. To live as a child of God, pursuing those things, a new creature set free, and yet still feeling the impulses in a heart of sin, still falling into temptation from time to time of being invested in the here and the now and in the relationships and in the human culture in which we find ourselves and yet trying to, to lay up treasure in heaven and have that be our focus. It, it can be really difficult. And the Psalms give a real honest, emotionally raw sort of perspective of what life is like walking through just the difficulty and the complexity of it all. Tertullian, I've used this quote before, but he says, All of Scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. And that is to say, they encapsulate, they capture almost every emotion, situation, position in life that you are going to have as you approach God, as you live life before God. They speak of being lonely. They speak of being depressed. They speak of being overjoyed. They speak of being disappointed, of needing refuge, of knowing that you need help and finding it in God, or being desperate for help and feeling like God is nowhere around. In a way, they give us, they give us the words, they give us permission, they give us the vocabulary of how we live life and yet continually come before God to worship Him. If we're always waiting to feel, I really feel it today, so my worship will be genuine. You'll rarely ever come to church. You'll rarely ever go to your Bible. We need to learn how to go to God no matter what those emotions, how we're feeling, where we are at in life. And the psalm teach us how to do that. I think that's why people connect with them so well. <clears throat> Jesus himself, as he quotes countless times from the Psalms, much more than any other book during his time here on the earth and the Gospels. He quotes from the Psalms multiple times, even in just the final hours before his crucifixion. So the Psalms work this way. The Psalms then are, are ordered in a very specific way as well. Most all Psalms are either prayers or songs. They're poetry of some sort that are prayers and songs. Um, 
Some will be called either the prayer book of the church or the song book of the church. A lot of them have a specific thing in the church, early church life or in the Old Testament that the psalm was used in a specific way. So we continue to use them in, in that way. So the psalms as we have them are edited or, or they're, they're composed, providentially so, in a very specific order. They were compiled in an order for our reason, for a specific reason, for our good. Here, Jim, as he said, will read book one of Psalms. I didn't know, that's actually like the first 45 Psalms, I think it is. There's five sections or five books of the Psalms, and they're presented to us. Psalm 1, where we find ourselves today, really Psalm 1 and 2, work together as sort of the gateway or the introduction to the book of Psalms. We need to understand Psalm 1 in light of it standing as here is how we understand. Here's how we are to read. Here is how we are to be affected by the rest of these Psalm 3 through 150. It gives us kind of a gateway, an introduction of how we walk into the Psalms. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's this book ends of how to be the blessed man and how Psalm, how the Psalms serve us in that. One commentator says it this way, Psalms 1 and 2 are a pair working together to put our feet on a path that goes from the non-praying, non-worshipping world in which we are habitually distracted and intimidated into the praying, worshipping world where we come to attention and practice adoration. But this is not easy because we are used to anxieties and egos and unanswered problems. We are not used to wonder, to God, and to mystery. And so Psalm 1 is this invitation to us into the book of Psalms, into the songs and prayers that will nourish us in our journey through the Christian life. Okay, so back to the idea of happiness. Blessed is the man introducing the Psalms for us. Psalm 1, Psalm 2 ends, blessed is the man, happy is the man, joyful satisfaction belongs to the man. So the first observation is that this sort of happiness belongs to those who meditate on the word. This sort of happiness belongs to those who meditate on the word. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says, on his law he meditates day and night. This really is the beginning and the end of the thought. Blessed is the man who on the law of the Lord meditates day and night. We sometimes get miss it because there's other information in there. And we'll look at that in our second point. There's other information in there. But who is the joyfully satisfied, who is the deeply, truly happy person, is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord. First of all, the law of the Lord is simply the scripture. It's broader than, than law or Ten Commandments. The law of the Lord is, it speaks to God's revealed word, the scripture. We speak about meditation. I think it can be intimidating to people. We, we use it in a Christian church setting at times, but without a lot of explanation. We talk about meditating or meditation on the word. Uh, often, I probably use that word some when Pastor Adam or I've done speaking. We, we give you just a moment of thoughtfulness, a moment of meditation on the word. It's a very different thing than 
Eastern meditation or contemplation as we might think about it now. In fact, it's nearly the opposite of that. In that setting, it's empty your mind of everything and let the universe sort of speak to you. That's not what we're doing. In fact, that would be a dangerous thing, I would think. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And to just let the universe speak into our empty minds would be a dangerous thing. Here, meditation is to set your mind upon the things of the Lord. Draw your attention to the things of the Lord. And then let the truth of that word in your mind descend then into your heart. It is to go from understanding God's word and its promises to sensing God's word in God's promises. Meditation really is, meditating upon the word of God, really is the way that God mediates his presence into our lives. Because you think it is his spoken word. It is God speaking to you. It is the Holy Spirit that indwells us, taking that word and offering comfort, offering exhortation, offering us encouragement, Speaking to us through that word. And so as we hear that word and we allow it to move from the mind into the heart by thoughtfulness, by thinking upon it, by gaining a sense of it, God mediates his presence into our lives through that. One commentator defines meditation this way. It is listening to truth in the presence of God through the lens of your current situation or emotion. It's bringing truth into contact with your heart. It's something I think we skip over often in our devotional life or, or whatever it might be, where we, we read God's word and sometimes we move right to prayer. Maybe we just pray and we skip both of them. If you want joyful satisfaction in the things of the Lord, and we'll see how important that is. We'll continue to see that. It takes meditation. It takes taking God's word and dwelling upon it. Not just in isolation, but in the face of the emotion, the circumstances, the disappointment that you are experiencing. Letting it shine light on the decisions you are making. Letting it shine light on the goals that you have. Letting it shine light in the way you are prioritizing relationships. Letting God's word move, as it says, descend from the head onto the heart. That really you begin to think and to feel these things of the word of the Lord. Some of the most moving prayers or moving pastors or moving books you're going to read are from people who have... I don't want to say I've mastered this, but who have made meditation a practice, a part of their life. That's really what preaching is, a lot of it. We take the word, we study it, we hopefully get our commentaries, and hopefully we're getting it right, and then we, we think on it, and, and we focus on it. And how do we let it come to affect our heart, not just to understand it, but to get a sense of God in it? And then it's delivered to you, not just so you can hear it, but that you can hear it and then you can meditate on it. And you can begin to get a sense of God and God's presence and God's word in your life and how it affects everything in your life. So this sort of happiness, this sort of joyful satisfaction 
It belongs to those who meditate upon the word. Second observation. This sort of happiness comes from the right influence. This sort of happiness comes from the right influence. We know what that is. It's the right influence is, is the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord. But we see it by the way that the psalmist composes it. Look here back into verse 1. Blessed is the man, then he moves negative, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Thinking through that, you wonder, like, why doesn't he just say, blesses the man who is not wicked, not a sinner, not a scoffer? Why does he put it in this way? Because what the psalmist is trying to do at the very beginning of the psalms, if the psalms are going to work in your heart in a worshipful way of, of encouragement, of prayerful, of joyful prayer and song to help you live this life and have the words that need to be spoken to God in every situation, then it's who is going to influence you? What, what is going to influence your heart? And so the, the contrast isn't righteousness and wickedness. The contrast is... <laughs> What is influencing and shaping your heart versus what else could influence and shape your heart? It's a matter of influence. Look how he, he talks about it here, kind of in this ascending progression of influence. The one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who, who begins thinking with them, who interacts in that sort of way in the counsel of the wicked, the one who stands in the way of sinners, call it more active there, the one who is, begins acting in this way, it continues to progress, the one who sits in the seat of the scoffers, that sitting has the idea of belonging. You know, if maybe you've heard the phrase, like, you've earned a seat at the table. That idea is like, you're one of us now, you belong, you you. You belong here in this. That's the idea. Is that their seat now. They belong to this group. And this influence of the wicked, this influence of, of not meditating upon the word of the Lord, but instead turning elsewhere, the influence has led them to be scoffers. That at the word of the Lord, they scoff. This person is never happy in the real sense of joyfully satisfied. We'll see what happens to them. But it's this matter of influence in your life. Instead, it is the one who lets the word become the influence in their life. And that's what meditation does, is allows the word to be more than just something we hear, but to influence the way we think and we live. And then God's word becomes what? A delight. We begin to really delight and find joy in that. We're being influenced all the time, whether we realize it or not. I think most of us are influenced much more than we realize. You know, no matter who you hear talking to you, whether they're at a news desk or it's a musician through lyrics or it's a movie through the movie producer, they have a perspective, they have a worldview, they have a message, and they are influencing you with it. It's something we've talked about often. Where do you find your news? You become cynical. I'd become cynical, I should say. That like nobody's honest with the news. I'll never know what's going on. Everyone's just trying to get their point across. And so you just pick how you want to be influenced. And that's the station you turn to. The same thing in, in music, the, the lyrics that come through. We're being influenced all the time. In fact, it's now a career, right? You can be an influencer. 
You go to Instagram. It's like, I think half of Instagram is like people who decide to fix up their house and then decide somehow they're just going to make a living out of doing it. And so they create a lie and they influence you with it. That it's fun to fix up your house and it's not that expensive and you are happy. You never get mad at your husband or wife while it's happening. It doesn't cost a million dollars for a piece of drywall. And so they have these pictures of this house transforming. And in every one, even though they're working, they're like never sweaty. They always have on like really cool clothes. They look, you know, just right. They build a following and then, you know, some tool company decides, well, I'll pay them to use my drill in their pictures. And some clothing companies, well, I'll pay them to wear my shirt while they're wearing And these people become influencers. And so you don't even recognize it. And you're walking through and before you know it, you think, we should really fix up our house. It looks like so much fun. And it's not. But anyways, they influence you. These, it becomes a, a whole thing now. And we are constantly being influenced. We know this. But sometimes we really guard against being influenced by the word of the Lord. We're a little nervous of what it might ask of us what we might give up, what priorities we might have to change. So it's easier just to kind of read and move on. Instead, let the sense of the truth sink into our heart. True joy comes from knowing who we are influenced by. The third observation, there's only four, so we're moving through here. This sort of happiness has great stability. This joyful satisfaction that the Psalms are talking about, this gateway into understanding the Psalms is that talks about how is one joyfully satisfied. It's by meditating upon the word, getting a sense of that truth, letting it be the influence in your life. And it brings great stability. You can tell just from the imagery of verse 3 and verse 4. You have the image of a tree with its firm roots, and you have an image of the chaff that is blown away by the wind, just kind of that weightless part of the grain or wheat that is blown away by the wind. So obviously a, a clear picture there of one is stable and one is not. The blessed man, the one who's joyfully satisfied through delighting in and meditating upon the law of the Lord, this one has stability. But I think there's more nuance in this image. I, I think from it we see that most people pursue happiness in the wrong way. One is that they're pursuing happiness, not pursuing God. Or pursuing the law of God or righteousness. It speaks of it in all those different ways in this psalm. You pursue the Lord and you get righteousness and happiness. You pursue happiness and you get neither. So the pursuit isn't just some sort of happiness. The pursuit is God and with it comes this joyful satisfaction. Secondly, they look, a lot of people pursue happiness wrongly because they look to the externals or the circumstances. And let that be the determination of whether we're happy or not. The picture here is, would be a, a Middle Eastern picture. So it's not just like a, two random pictures of a tree in a meadow and a field of grain or something. It is a, a picture of a Middle Eastern sort of arid climate culture that goes through real long droughts. And so you have this tree... And through these, these areas, you have what they call those wadis, those ravines. They fill up with water during the rainy season, and then they dry out almost completely during drought time. 
But this tree, it's planted near the nexus of the river, the, where, the one place where there's at least a little water, water close to the surface anyways, even in the roughest of seasons. It's not free from the drought. It's, not, it's facing the same wind that the chaff is. Look how it says it. it. It yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. It, it could. The sun's beating down on it. It has seasons where it's not nearly as fruitful. And yet its leaf doesn't curl up and dry and wither. Why? Because the nourishment isn't coming from the surrounding. It's coming from the roots that go down deep and are drinking up the water. In fact, it's in the hottest, hardest times that the roots have to go the deepest. That's the contrast that's being drawn here. It's not like one is just like a picture of a meadow and it's so pretty. No, they're both facing the same arid, difficult climate. They're both facing the beating sun. They both go through the seasons of life, seasons of fruitfulness, seasons that aren't as fruitful. They both go through difficulty. It's just the one remains joyfully satisfied, even in the most difficult, the hardest of times. So that you could rightly say, this man is blessed. He is joyfully satisfied, even when he barely has the energy to get out of bed in the morning because his depression is overwhelming, because the grief is overwhelming. That's how you walk into the Psalms. That is how you read it. That, that my joyful satisfaction that bursts forth in praise to God. These prayers. I can come when I'm lonely. I can come when I'm joyful. I can come when I'm confused. I can come however. Because the roots go deeply and drink from the water. Because we're hearing the word. And we're not just hearing it. We're meditating upon it. We're getting a real sense for it. God is mediating his presence to us. This is a relationship. God is my father and I am his child and, and we are in relationship with one another. And the Psalms serve us of giving us voice and how do I proclaim praise to him and prayer to him even when I feel like he's abandoning me. And there's plenty of Psalms that take that tone. And it's because we've drunk deeply from the water and even though fruitfulness and the seasons change, our hope doesn't. The last part of this stability is subpoint of stability is that it brings prosperity. I gotta be careful here. I'm not switching all of a sudden to a prosperity gospel, but you will see in verse three, and all that he does, he prospers. We know this isn't just a material or external prosperity. Some of us may have that for a time, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about fruitfulness. It's talking about your labors not being in vain. That if you are influenced, if you are thinking and you are acting and you are belonging to the Lord, then your labor will not be in vain. First Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is, it's not just blown away with the wind like the chaff. There, there's something lasting. There's something prosperous about it, even if it doesn't translate into material prosperity. And then the fourth observation then of this sort of joyful 
happy Christianity is that God delights in those who are joyfully satisfied in him. God delights in those who are joyfully satisfied in him. Last two verses. Therefore the wicked will not stand in, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You're coming to these two destinies that everyone is going to be fixed into one of these. The wicked and the righteous. It's all the way back, though. We haven't left the context. It's the blessed man, the one who has been influenced by the word of the Lord through meditation, or the one who has been influenced by sin, by wickedness, and has become a scoffer and a mocker of the word of God. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. And in the end, the, the way of the wicked will know judgment. It will be fixed judgment. It will be terrible judgment. But the way of the righteous, look how he contradicts the contrast the two. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will perish. The beginning of verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This know here, the word is, is a much stronger word than just like he recognizes or is aware of. This knowing, it's used other places in the intimacy of marriage. To God knows means that he is, he is intimately connected, that he is affectionate. There is approval towards you. Very similar to the idea of delighting. That those who meditate upon the law of the Lord, there is a stability about their life. There is a prosperity about their life. And God's affection, God's delight rests on them. It says that in a couple places in Psalms, that God delights in us, or we're the apple of his eye. That's really a pretty amazing statement. But again, this relational idea that God delights in us. I'd be remiss to say at the end that if, we're just, if I just came to you and said, hey, if you're righteous, God delights in you. If you're wicked, then, you know, you're out of luck. And none of us would feel good about that because we all know our hearts are bent towards wickedness. There is none of us who completely and totally can say, yeah, we totally avoid wickedness and sin and scoffing. We get it right all the time. And this is the other point of the Psalms. It's always coming back to Christ. Because in the end, who is truly the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers? Christ is. We meditate upon his word. Our faith rests in him, and we are brought in union with Christ. We share in his righteousness through faith. That when God looks at the Son, he is fully pleased with the Son, and so he is fully pleased with us. Not that we just cross the line from wickedness to righteousness on our own works, but Jesus Christ did it and we look to him. Who is the one who really is known by the Lord and God delights in them? It is Christ. But as children of God, as adopted into God through Jesus Christ, we are his possession. He delights in us like he does in his own son. 
he is keeping us for a royal inheritance. And he is keeping that inheritance for us as we see in 1 Peter. So we come to the idea of happiness. Again, this is serious business, not light-hearted, frivolous happiness. But talking about joyful satisfaction, it's incredibly important. Because it belongs to the one who delights in the law of God. That that influence is, is what marks his life. The one that God delights in is the one that, God, uh, the one that is delighting in God. Psalm 1, and we need to understand it in this gateway to the Psalms. How are the Psalms, this worship, how is it to present, how is it to work in our lives? How are we to understand it? That is that we will face all seasons of life. And yet meditating upon the word of God and allowing the truth of it to come in and grip our hearts that we then get a sense of it and not just an understanding will we'll change the way we approach to God. And ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. He's our hope, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it does not return void. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the importance of meditating upon your word, of allowing truth to grab hold, not just of our minds, but of our hearts. Lord, to give us a stable and a joyful life. Lord, a, a joy that is, Lord, beaten about by all types of circumstances, yet roots go deep into our God. So we find ourselves not blown around, not looking at other things for, for happiness, but always trying to go down deeper, Lord, to feed from the living water. Give us a thirst and a hunger for that, Lord.